Okay, just while everything's powering up, just a reminder on the announcements. Hmm. Oh, it's the announcement page. Jeff, uh, I've got good reports from Jeff and Doug about what's going on down in Natal. Also, there is a blog that's under the missionary tab on the Dean Bible Ministries website, and they are posting pictures and daily reports on what's going on in Natal. So if you want to keep up with that, then that is the place to go to find out what's going on uh, with them. And so that's going along uh, pretty well. Also, of course, we are having the picnic. Everybody should have received the email on that. And it looks like there's a, a small percentage of rain, but... Uh, According to their best guesses, that's going to be later in the afternoon after we're done. So uh, the weather looks uh, looks good. So we're excited about that. So look forward to seeing everybody everybody out there. I'm trying to think, was there? Oh, when are we having the deacons meeting, Alan? Out there. Okay. So we need to get out there a little early. Deacons do for setup and other things like that. Okay. Uh, anything else? Am I missing anything on the announcements, Gene? That, that's right. George, George Mueller, who's a longtime missionary, now retired. Many of you know who he, who he is. He's a missionary in Cameroon uh, from Germany. Uh, he was involved in an automobile accident last night. Somebody rear-ended him, and he is at Mo, uh, Memorial Hermann Hospital. So we need to be in, pray for, in prayer for George. Seems like there was something else that came across uh, today. Uh, we prayed for John Hintz the other day. He's doing fine with, from his shoulder surgery, and um, I think that's just about it. I don't can't think of anything else. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. Make sure that we are, that we're in right relationship with the Lord in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful we can come together this evening to fellowship around your word, to focus on your word, to be strengthened through the study of what you have revealed to us, that we might think about it profoundly, think about it deeply, and reflect upon the significance of what you have revealed to us. Father, we pray that we might be responsive to the challenge that Peter is laying before us in the second half of the first chapter, and that we might be responsive uh, to that, that we might continue to grow and press on to spiritual maturity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. And we're going to press on into the next uh, next couple of verses. Now, whenever we get started in, in any in any Bible study, in any epistle, we always have to make sure we understand context. And context is important for understanding things like word usage. And as we've gone through First Peter 
uh, many times, what we have uh, realized is that Peter is not talking about how to be justified. He's talking about how to be delivered from the midst of trials today. And so when we look at it from that perspective, it helps us to understand uh, what he is saying and why he is saying it. As we get into this section, we're reminded, just briefly put the, up here on the screen, that that we have phase one, justification, phase two, the spiritual life, and phase two, phase three, glorification. Saved is used in each of those senses. Some people think it's almost saved, used as many times related to the spiritual life as it is related to justification. And that just runs so counter to how all of us were uh, sort of trained as Christians, and that's what we hear in Christian evangelical verbiage a lot is, is um, how many people are saved or have you been, or when were you saved and, and how, how do you know when you're saved? And it's always phase one. Earl Rodmacher used to say, I was saved yesterday, I'm being saved today, I'm going to be saved tomorrow, and I'll be saved the next day. Emphasizing that ongoing phase two aspect of, of, of sanctification. Now, <clears throat> the first 12 verses of 1 Peter focus on the introduction, which introduces several critical ideas that get picked up and repeated as we go through First uh, Peter. One is this focus on the future, the hope. We have seen that uh, repeated again in the first verse of this, fir- this first major section of the epistle. Verse 13, therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope. That's the first command that we have in this section. I pointed out last time that as we go through uh, Peter, we have indicative moods in the first 12 verses, but we start getting imperative mood verbs in the uh, starting in verse 13, and that tells us what our action plan is. That's what we are supposed to do in light of what's been described uh, in the introduction. The introduction focuses on hope, which is our, uh, our our conviction, the certainty of what will take place. It's a uh, <clears throat> certain expectation of the future. It also focuses on rewards. It talks about our inheritance. It's incorruptible and undefiled, and that's referred, uh, that is uh, reserved in heaven for us. So this is the focal point. Now, when we get into this next section, if we look at these verses, verses 13 down through uh, 19, really, or excuse me, down through 21, 13 down through 21 represents one paragraph. And we went through the first uh, couple of, uh, of sentences. Actually, it's one sentence, 13 through 16 last time. And I put these up on the screen so that we can just review this quickly because what's important is for us to note these imperative mood verbs. Uh, the section begins with a therefore, showing that it's drawing a conclusion based on and an inference based on what's already been said. And the main verb isn't gird up the loins of your mind, as I pointed out last time. That's a participle. We get It's confusing in the English because of the way they translate it. But the, the main verb is an imperative verb, rest your hope fully, or hope fully. It's not just rest your hope. It's just the verb... Um, 
that means to hope, and it means fully hope on the grace of God that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So again, this is focusing on the future, focusing on on phase three, and what will take place immediately after that for the believer is going to be the judgment seat of Christ, as we'll see in this section. And then we have a second command in verse 15 that we are to be holy in all of our conduct. Now, the word that is used there for conduct is the noun anastrophe, and the verb is used in the very next verse, which is the first verse that we're looking at this evening, where it's, which is translated, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here with fear. So it's definitely connected together. And the idea of this verb is that it describes a person's way of life, their behavior, their lifestyle. It, it, it is an all-inclusive term, and it's important because as this term is used uh, in verse 15 and then in verse 17, there's something that is sandwiched in the middle. And this helps us to understand a term that is sometimes a little ambiguous and sometimes just downright misunderstood by Christians, and that's the word work. And we'll have to take some time to look at that and see what that means. But the word work, each one's work, is sandwiched by these two words, the noun anastrophe and the verb anastrepho, meaning the conduct of one's life. So by works there, it's not distinguishing between that which is done in the power of the Holy Spirit and that which is not done in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's just talking about the product of one's life. And so often we've heard people say, well, we have to focus and and split the hairs. Every time we see the word work, we have to define it in terms of either human good or divine good. But sometimes it's, it's a broad term, and it just means everything that is uh, part of a person's life. The previous section concluded with the mandate to be holy, for I am holy. And I retranslated that at the end because holy is is one of those uh, God words that people use a lot, but they don't always know what it means. And it has the idea of being set apart or being distinct or unique. So I retranslated or paraphrased verse 15, but as he who called you is distinct, that is emphasis on the uniqueness and the set-apartness of God, the creator-creature distinction, that God is totally distinct from his creation. But as he who called you is distinct and set apart from his creation, you also be distinct and set apart in all of your conduct. And this is emphasizing that the believer is to live on the basis of grace and on the basis of loving one another and all of the other virtues that are present that are developed in the believer's life because of his walk by means of the Spirit. And this is repeated again as as Peter quotes in verse 16 from uh, several passages in uh, excuse me in yeah several passages in um, in the Old Testament Leviticus 11:44 and Leviticus 19:2 are just two of them to be distinct and set apart for I am distinct and set apart says the Lord now this brings us to what I concluded with last time is we need to ask ourselves is how do we achieve this holy life this set apart life what do we do? That's the mechanics, or that's the how-to in the Christian life, and that's part of what this 
chapter is talking about, and we see it through the the imperative moods, what we are to do. Uh, we need to think as God thinks. That starts with Romans 12, too. We're not to be conformed to the world, but we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10 talks about taking every thought uh, captive for Christ. It is f- a focus on thought. We need to quit thinking like Satan, quit thinking like the world thinks, quit trying to problem-solve the way the world tells us to problem-solve, and handle life on the basis of the Word of God. And we do that by focusing on the end game. When things get tough, when things get rugged, when things don't go the way we think they should, when everything seems to be falling apart, then we focus our attention on that uh, end game of that God is walking us through a training course to prepare us for eternity. Now, verse 17, the next three verses I've put up here on the screen because this helps us to focus our attention on, on this, this, this one sentence. Um, just remember in, in anything, your sentence is your basic unit of thought. And it can be very simple in terms of the main clause of a sentence, but there are a lot of secondary ideas are attached to it. So uh, 17, 18, and 19 in, in the New King James are identified as one sentence, although I think that relates to the main clause. It could be punctuated at the end of 19, and some versions do with a semicolon. Uh, and then verse 20 continues a secondary thought because 20 and 21 uh, relate back to what he has mentioned about Christ uh, the lamb without spot or blemish in verse 19. So what we'll do is we'll just spend some time tonight talking about 17 through 19 and what is going on in this particular set of verses. A couple of things that we need to think about as we study this. And, and whenever we read the Bible, I find it very helpful to slow down in, in reading. And it's good if you have a pen and paper by your hand just to write down questions. What I've often found in, as I as I study is when I read in the original languages, because I don't read them, I'm not as familiar with the vocabulary as I am with English, I really have to slow down. And that makes me see things that I don't see when I'm just reading reading in the English. So some of the things that we need to look at are questions we need to ask. And the, the verse 17 begins with the conditional clause, if you call on the Father. And so the focal point here is on the Father, and this seems to have been an emphasis in Peter's um, in Peter's vocabulary so far. Look at verse two: We are choice according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He goes on to mention the sanctification of the Spirit and the sprinkling, obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, but there's that emphasis on the Father. And then in verse 3 in the introduction, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he has a focal focus on the Father. Why is the Father mentioned? And then what he says about the Father is that he's the one who without partiality judges according to each one's work. Now, what are we talking about here? Are we talking about something that's going on today or something that is going on in the future? And I think it's both. But in light of John 5, where where Jesus says 
that the Father delegates to him all judicial authority. How do we put that together? Second question we should ask is, what's the significance here when he says that that he judges according to each one's works? Now, you get sort of a part one, part two right now, because in our Sunday morning series in, in Matthew, as I've uh, concluded this major section before we get into the Passion Week, and Jesus' entry, the, the entry into Jerusalem and the prelude to that, which is what happens when he goes through Jericho. As we are um, at this sort of stopping point, I'm giving going through a review, and one of the things I'm doing on Sunday is a review of rewards and judgment and just summarizing that because that's the focal point of, of Jesus' training for the disciples. So we need to understand that and get that review so... As I was preparing, and I thought, wow, I've already done all this. I just had to rearrange a few slides, and I was ready to go again. So it's good review, good repetition. So what's the significance of works in the believer's life? If you listen to some believers, they think that that works are important for salvation. You have to be baptized. You have to do good. uh, You have to believe in Jesus. But if you don't have the kind of life that goes along with being a Christian, then you weren't really saved. So they, they have a, these different places where they, where they put, put works. Uh, some say that, um, basically what they're doing is works that are, are done, human works that are done by anyone somehow is something that gains merit or approval from God. It can be ritual. It can be participation in certain rituals. For example, in Roman Catholic theology, if you participate in the sacraments, then each time you do, God sort of doles out the merit of Christ. In, in Roman Catholic theology, what happens is that that Jesus gets this treasury of merit. He gets this sort of unlimited bank account that gets put on deposit because of what he did on the cross. And then as we do or participate in various uh, sacraments, then those merits get doled out, and you have to have a certain number of merits before you're justified or you go to heaven. So the question that you can ask if you're witnessing or talking to somebody who's Roman Catholic is, how do you know when you have enough? And, of course, they're saying, well, I I don't know. Well, would you like for me to show you in the Bible that the Bible says that you can know that you have enough and go to passages uh, like John twenty thirty one, these are written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing on him you have eternal life. It's something you can know. It's not just, just guesswork. So that's uh, that's one, one thing. You have others that talk about doing good deeds in terms of service, uh, acts of kindness towards others. Others emphasize being part of the right group. We're going to see a couple of examples of that tonight, that if you're in the right denomination, if you are, it used to be with the Church of Christ, if you weren't Church of Christ, you couldn't get to heaven. And there are other groups that have done the same kind of thing. That that was inherent within Second Temple Judaism. If you were a descendant of Abraham, then you were in. And if you were... Uh, if as long as you were a descendant of Abraham and you were a Jew, you were automatically uh, going to heaven. Uh, others, it might be ethnicity. Different religious groups have different things. If you're part of the right group, then you're in. <clears throat> so 
there are those who place some kind of emphasis on something we do to get merit or approval from God. Then, then on the other hand, there are many believers who say that works are not the basis for salvation at all. You can't be justified by works. We're justified by faith. And But works play no part in anything. I've, I've talked about the role of works in the Christian life, and I've had some people say, that's just legalism. Talk about works at all is legalism. Well, you have a little problem with a lot of the New Testament, and you really haven't understood what legalism is. I find legalism is, is often defined by some people as somebody else who's try, who is really trying to just obey the word or they're trying to apply it to their life consistently, and they're, they've chosen not to do certain things, maybe things we have a liberty in, that this person has chosen to do, and maybe they're being convicted a little bit because somebody else has said, well, I just don't think that's the right thing for me to do. I'm not going to do it. So then they get uh, their knickers in a knot over that. So we have to understand the role that Scripture says that works plays in the Christian life, and how do they play a role in the Christian life. And then another question we can ask is, can a believer produce different kind of works? Some believers uh, can produce works of the flesh. Others produce works of the Spirit. What's the distinction and what makes that distinction? And that leads to defining the term works a little more precisely, a little more biblically. Another thing we have to address here is, is talk about judging is what judgment is being addressed here. There are a variety of different judgments in the Bible. Are, are, is this talking about the great white throne judgment? Is this talking about the judgment seat of Christ or some other judgment? Then at the end it says that we are to conduct ourselves throughout the time of our stay in fear. What does that mean to conduct our lives in fear? I thought that God uh, did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, that we were not to be afraid. Uh, what does it mean to live on the basis of fear? How is that used? And then another question is, what is the significance of the phrase, your time on the earth? How does that relate to these things? So uh, let's uh, just begin by looking at this uh, verse in verse 17. Starts off with a conditional clause, if, and I put a little superscript one there, because in Greek you can express a condition or a hypothetical several different ways. You can say if, and we're assuming that the, the protasis, that first part of the statement, the condition, we're going to assume it's true. Uh, this is what uh, Satan did when he's tempting Jesus. He said, if you are the Son of God... And he phrased it in a positive that basically since you are the Son of God. He recognized that Jesus was the Son of God. He wasn't saying, well, maybe you are and maybe you aren't. In other examples, the if means uh, is assuming the condition is not true. That's called a second-class condition. A third-class condition is when you don't really know uh, one way or the other if we confess our sins. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. Those are the... Verse 3, there's a fourth class that's also used, but the first three are the most prominent ones. So this is a first-class condition, and it is assuming that they do call on the Father and what that means. So it is, it could be translated along the lines of since you call on the Father. Now that brings up another question, and that is, what does this verb mean, epikaleo, to call upon, because it is a... Um, it is a present middle uh, 
in, in uh, present middle indicative. And what does that mean? What's the significance of that? And it <clears throat> it is usually used. Uh, the uh, the active voice is used to uh, simply address someone. But the middle voice is used when someone is addressing God in prayer or addressing a deity in prayer. So that's what it's emphasizing. You are entreating God. You are interceding. You're filing a petition with God. If you call on the Father, and the first class condition indicates that these are believers, they, there's no doubt in his mind, these are believers, and he is saying, since you call on the Father, since you uh, pray to the Father. And remember, uh, Peter is writing to Jewish background believers, he's writing to Hebrew Christians in the first century, and so in, in Jewish uh, background, the concept of the Father is a word that is loaded in terms of of implications. It's a word that emphasizes authority. It's a word that emphasizes uh, prominence. It's a word that indicates the ultimate uh, determiner of, uh, of things. So it emphasizes God's role as Father, and it emphasizes Him as the as the uh, impartial judge. And that Peter is relating this to his role at, in, in terms of authority and judicial authority. So if you uh, entreat the Father, and then the Father is further defined through this relative clause, saying, who without partiality uh, judges according to each one's work. And the word there indicates that there is true objectivity on the part of the Father. He has true objectivity because he's omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows the mo- our motives. He knows what we do. He knows what our rationalizations and justifications are. He perfectly understands everything there is to understand about uh, every decision that we have uh, that we have made in life, and he judges according to each one's work. Now, I think there's two things that are going on here. I think that there is a a recognition that the Father is the one who is the judge at that particular time, that it is the future when the Father will uh, delegate that judicial authority to the Son. This is seen in John 5.21 and following. For example, in John 5.21, For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but he committed all judgment to the Son. This is the judgment that it gets delegated to the Son once he comes as the Son of Man, not prior to that. And that delegation to the Son of Judgeship is is a foundation for a principle we have in our uh, judiciary, and that is the idea of being tried by peers. That that God the Father is all deity, but the Son is also humanity. He's true humanity. So when the Son judges us, this is the Son who was tr- uh, tried in all points as we are, tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. So that we are being evaluated not by God who has no comprehension or understanding of what we've gone through, but we're being evaluated by the Son of Man, emphasizing his humanity. 
And we get down to John 5.25. Most assuredly, Jesus said, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. See, that throws it into the future at the second coming, resurrection. Uh, he's not making a distinction here between the rapture and the second coming. Uh, John 5.26, for as the Father has life in himself, so he granted the, uh, granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Emphasis on his humanity. And so this is what comes into play. Now let's just have a little review here on the different judgments and resurrections that occur in, uh, in the future. So we have the first fruits of resurrection that takes place after the cross on, on Easter. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we have the rapture that occurs at the end of the church age, and all believers living and dead meet the Lord Jesus Christ in the air. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We who uh, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is the rapture of the church, all church-age believers. It doesn't involve Old Testament saints because Old Testament saints are not part of the church. They're not going to be part of the bride of Christ. The church began on the day of Pentecost with the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit, the baptism by the Holy Spirit. At the time of the rapture, there will be an evaluation, which is the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Uh, this takes place before the beginning of the tribulation. The reason we know that is because the 24 elders who are in heaven surrounding the throne of God in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 are representatives of the church. And they have their crowns. They are Stephanos crowns, which indicates they are awards, they're rewards. And they cast those before the throne of heaven. And they, um, because of what they sing, that they have been redeemed, when they praise the Lamb and say, you have redeemed us, we know that that can't apply to angels. So the 24 elders are talking about humans. It's the only ones that have been uh, rewarded, possibly rewarded at that time, are going to be the uh, church-age believers. Now, people say, well, that's going to take a lot of time. Well, when we're in heaven, that's timeless. So it, 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 it's going to have progression. It's going to appear. It's going to take uh, a period of time. But in terms of earth time, it's just going to take a day or two, and everything's moving on on the earth. So it's not like it's going to take... Uh, a lot of time in terms of earth time. There's a judge, judgment seat of Christ. And then the next judgments, um, well, okay, then the next judgment that comes is, uh, and it's when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at the second coming. Now, to understand this distinction between the rapture and the second coming is to help us understand a phrase that's used in the scripture that refer to all of these as the first resurrection. That is the, the uh, resurrection of Christ as the first fruits, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Then we have the rapture of the church. And then at the midpoint of the tribulation period, there will be a rapture of the two witnesses, 
that are taken to heaven. And then there is the uh, resurrection of Old Testament saints and tribulation saints that occurs at the end of the tribulation period. It's not really spelled out in Revelation. It's implied, though, because those who are resurrected from those who are dead from the Old Testament, the Old Testament saints, in order to participate in the promises of God, for example, Abraham never owned the land. God said, I'm going to give this land to you and to your descendants. But he never owned anything except the cave of Machpelah down in Hebron where he and Sarah were buried. So for him to own the land, he's going to have to be resurrected and have ownership in the land. Same thing with Isaac and Jacob and the other patriarchs. So the Old Testament saints are resurrected, and Trib saints, since they're part of Israel, are also resurrected at that particular time. At that that particular time, after the defeat of uh, the Antichrist, there's going to be a judgment of the nations, and they will, and that's the Gentiles. So there's a separation of Gentiles between the sheep and the goats. And the sheep represent believers. The goats represent unbelievers. And the sheep are on the right and the goats are on the left. It's always interesting how many times in scripture God says the good guys go to the right. The others go to the left. Just think about that. Then there's the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet as they are thrown into the lake of fire. They don't have benefit of, of resurrection. They just get sent directly uh, to the lake of fire. Do not pass go. Uh, do not collect $200. The only thing that happens on the way is, and we have to logically deduce this from Scripture, they're in a mortal body which would just be incinerated instantly in the lake of fire. So somewhere in that very brief transition, they pick up a body that will survive and be tormented throughout uh, all of eternity. In the sheep and the goat judgments, the surviving Gentiles and Jews are are going to be uh, evaluated, and the Old Testament saints are going to be evaluated at that particular time as well as tribulation saints. Then we go into the Millennial Kingdom, and at the end of the Millennial Kingdom there is the second resurrection, and this involves all of the unsaved from all of human all of human history. Now, I want you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. We're going to talk through this just a minute to make sure we all understand what happens at the judgment seat of Christ. Revelation chapter 20, Satan has been bound for a thousand years, and he is in the abyss for a thousand years. And then we're told in verse 7, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints, and then fire comes down from heaven, and he just incinerates them. They're just vaporized instantly. And then the devil is cast into the lake of fire, finally, uh, where the beast and false prophet have been having their own little private party uh, for a thousand years. And then we're told they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, there's sort of a redundancy in that terminology. It doesn't just say they will be tormented forever. 
there is a conceivable use of the word forever in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which can mean just a long time, and some people camp out on that. But you have a repetition forever and ever, and you also have uh, the emphasis tormented day and night. It's that repetition of these time terms that emphasizes the fact that God isn't just saying they're going to have a long time and then they're annihilated. That's a view that has become popular today because people think that somehow this this violates the love of God to torment his creatures uh, forever and ever and ever uh, throughout all of eternity. That's the whole point of the angelic conflict is to show that those who have rejected God are responsible for all of the horrors and all of the torments and all of the suffering, the famines, the earthquakes, the wars, the torture, everything is a result of Satan ultimately who disobeyed God and everyone else who remained a rebel against God. And therefore God is showing that it is the punishment fits the crime because of all the evil that they have done. Then we come to the great white throne judgment in verse 11. John says, I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away. That is showing how severe this judgment is. And then he says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, which is the best reading of the text. So they're standing before the throne, and this is only the unsaved. All of the uh, unsaved are there, and they will be cast into the lake of fire following suit for Satan. Now, I'm going to shift to this slide. Here we have the great white throne judgment. Now, what's in existence in the past has been Sheol, and the Sheol, or Hades, is going to give up the dead. So John says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before the throne, and books are opened. Okay, so we're going to have multiple books. Books are opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. This is mentioned here and in verse 15, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things that are written in the books. Okay? So we have this accounting of the works. Now, this term works isn't a term that that is defined by either good or evil. It it doesn't say they're judged by their evil works. And the reason is, is because the sin was paid for at the cross. It doesn't say they're judged by their good works. What we have to understand is what we're seeing in 1 Peter is that the word works there sandwiched between the verb anastrepho and the noun anastrepho. I think it's anastrepho. It's it's sandwiched between those two words indicating that what works relates to is the totality of whatever a person produces in life. And some things are good and some things are not good. But the issue here isn't focusing on what's good or what's bad. The issue is all the works are piled up and there's a standard which is God's righteousness like up here at the ceiling. And the issue is do their works get them that high? And the conclusion is, no, they don't. It's not just looking at one kind of work. It's looking at the totality of their life. Did they get there? Did they achieve perfect righteousness to have fellowship with God on their own? 
And some people are going to have a minuscule pile. Other people are going to have a pile that may be five or six inches high, none of which is even going to come close to what God requires, and it lacks the quality. And it's very, very simple. Uh, they're just because they, since they don't have the righteousness of Christ, the only thing left is whatever they've produced in life. And is it going to be enough? So there is an evaluation from the man's book of <clears throat> the book of works, and the lamb's book of life is going to determine uh, if their name is there. And of course, all of these are those who have not been resurrected. So we're told, verse thirteen: the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each one according to his works. Now we're going to see that phrase "according to his works" many times in the scripture. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. So this tells us that they have no recourse. This is all of the unsaved dead that show up at the great white throne judgment. So is there another judgment? And yes, there is. And that's the judgment seat of Christ. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. Now, I talked about the fact that we have a judgment or evaluation. It's not mentioned per se. There's a general statement in Daniel 12, but it's just a vague statement. Uh, But we know, based on what happens with the church, what happens with the unsaved, that those who are resurrected Old Testament saints, as well as tribulation saints, that there will be an evaluation judgment for them. It's just not spelled out. God doesn't spell everything out, out in the Scriptures. Now, the phrase that we have to focus on, that we need to understand a little more clearly because it's a phrase that's often misunderstood, is the phrase that relates to works. We're judged. God will judge us according to our works. So I'm going to take you through just a few passages, and I want you to take some time and make some notes in the margin of your Bible in case you need to use this. Uh, this is just one of many ways that you can witness to people, and I've used this uh, before when I've been witnessing to Jews, so it, it's, it's helpful. Remember, if you're ever talking to Jews, try to, to give them the gospel from the Old Testament without ever going to the New Testament, because that, if, any, if they accept any authority from Scripture, that's what they would accept. They're not going to accept something necessarily from the New Testament. But when we talk about works... The Bible talks about works in the sense of excluding works for justification. And we have several key verses for this, and I just want to focus on about three of them. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Now, Paul is using saved here in the sense of phase one. It's very clear. It can't be phase two. It can't be phase three. It's it's past tense, for you have been saved uh, it's a perfect tense there. It's a completed action in the past. You have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, and too bad they put a, a verse break there because it needs to flow. It's the gift of God, not of works. That's the contrast. A work is something that you do expecting return from it. Paul will use the term wage. Okay, It is a return for effort you put forward. So salvation, phase one, is not of works, 
lest anyone should boast. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 is a great uh, passage to memorize, but it does. we always stop there. We'll come back and show how verse 10 relates in just a minute. Titus 3, 5. Now, this is a fascinating verse, especially when you realize that that the pharisaical, pharisaically trained Paul writes this. This is a classic pharisaical term, the works of righteousness. In Hebrew, the word for righteousness is sedekah. And even today, if you're talking to Jews, they use sedekah to refer to charitable works. This is that which gets them uh, benefits from God. This is what will... Uh, uh, this is what gets them a- a- approval from God, and this is what is the basis for determining whether they will spend eternity with God or not. And so Paul, the, Fer- the ex-Pharisee, uses this term very precisely. It's not by works of tzedakah, uh not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, again using sozo as phase one uh, salvation. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now we're going to go to the third. These ought to be daisy chain in your thinking. These are really tightly connected thoughts, separate books, but they all say basically the same thing. Galatians 2.16. The context of Galatians 2 is the Judaizers who came along behind Paul uh, and, and uh, Barnabas in the first missionary journey said, it's all good to believe in Jesus, but you have to do other things in order to be justified. And in the first chapter, Paul says, anyone who adds to our gospel or changes, it's another gospel, and they let them be a curse, let them be anathema. So at the conclusion of that discussion, he says, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law. It couldn't be any more strongly stated. A man is not declared righteous. The word for righteous or just in the Old Testament is that same word, tzedakah, righteousness, justice. They all relate together. Uh, A man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Just a complete contrast there. He says, even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. In other words, he's completely excluding ritual. Now, here's a danger that's going on today, just to kind of wake up. There's so many X-acts and spasms going on today, you just can't keep up with the heresy. But there is a uh, former bishop in the Anglican Church by the name of N.T. Wright, uh, Tom Wright, and he is quite brilliant, and he has written a huge number of books. He is extremely accomplished academically, and that's sort of the problem with anybody who wants to debate him, is he's got a prodigious memory, and he's read uh, and studied rabbinics, he studied uh, early church history, studied patristics, he can quote from the Greek, quote from the Hebrew, and he can run circles around a lot of people in terms of their thinking. Now, he fits within a spectrum of uh, several other scholars who started this shift, this movement in the early 80s, and it's called the New Perspectives of Paul. And basically they're saying is the Reformation just kind of got it a little wrong, that, that, that Paul is not being that down on the Jews. When he talks about the works of the law, he's just talking about the ritual. He's not talking about their morality. 
What's, what's going on here? Well, like other movements that have come up here or there in the history of the church, you get certain Christians who have really wonderful relationships with unsaved people, in this case, unsaved Jews. And they're wonderful people. They're God-fearing people. They, they go to synagogue every week. They read Torah every day. Uh, they are worshiping the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's only one problem. They don't accept Jesus as the Messiah. So is there another way? Can Jews be saved on a different basis than Christians? And one, one way that's popular is this idea of two covenants, that Jews are saved on the basis of, of a, a God's covenant with Israel. Of course, the Abrahamic covenant never talks about individual salvation. And Christians are saved on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. That's called the two a covenant view of salvation. But these guys come along and they say, well, Paul, really, we've misinterpreted all these years' works of the law. Works of the law just refers to ritual, trying to get to heaven by ritual, as opposed to uh, the works of the law, meaning righteousness, morality. And so they're trying to reinter... And this has become a huge movement. About six or seven years ago, I went to Atlanta for an ETS, that was about the last time probably that I'll go to an ETS conference, but N.T. Wright was speaking, and there was a big debate in the whole conference. You've got about 1,500 evangelical scholars there, and they're all there for, for this conference. The theme was debating these issues on the new perspectives of Paul. And it, you know, when, if you're not used to it, it gets quite confusing, but that's, that's what's coming along today. And we've got people in this congregation who have family members who've been in a couple of different doctrinal churches who have been swayed to the dark side because their pastor was and, and a church that was dispensational and free grace and squared away and doctrinal shifted to where it was covenant theology and then it became um, replacement theology, and then it becomes basically uh, that's that's the doorstep to anti-Semitism. So what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.16 is that a man is not justified, he's not made righteous or declared righteous, is the best way to translate declared righteous, by the works of the law. Obedience to the law, ritual or morality, won't get you a declaration of righteousness. So how in the world is somebody saved in the Old Testament? How were Jews saved in the Old Testament? How were they justified? Well, let's kind of walk this, and you need to put these notes in your Bible. If you're ever talking to somebody who's Jewish, this is a good tool uh, to remember. Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah says, But we are all like an unclean thing, Unclean, remember, you can't get into the presence of God if you're unclean. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Not our unrighteousness, but all of our tzedakah, all of our charitable giving, all of the good things that we do, all the, all the things we do for culture, society, to try to uh, improve the world. Uh, that is... Uh, that's our sedekah. And, and Isaiah says, all of our sedekah are like filthy rags. We all fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. That's it. So it, how do we get sedekah? If we can't get it by doing good, by doing sedekah, how can we get it? Well, then you go back to Genesis 15.6. Genesis 15.6 
you have this conversation, uh, I mean this statement, summary statement that occurs about Abraham. 1 through 5 talks about God reaffirming his promise to Abraham that he's going to have a child that's going to come from him, from his own body. It's not going to be through his, his servant. And in verse 6, then, you have this parenthetical statement that's indicated by the grammar, and it's a perfect tense use of the, of the uh, uh, Hebrew verb there, and it should be translated, and it's sort of a reminder. And remember, he had already believed in the Lord, and he, that is the Lord, Yahweh, accounted it to him for righteousness. Now, remember when I talked about the Catholic view? I said in the Catholic view, Jesus dies on the cross. God puts this huge amount of, of, of righteousness in the treasury of merit, and it gets doled out for every time you subscribe to, the, uh, to some sort of sacrament. You know, that's not anything new. Jesus ran into the same thing, ran into the same thing in, um, with the Pharisees. I've got a slide out of order here, so I want to change uh, where I am here. Okay, let's go to John. John 8.33. Jesus is having a little conversation. might be helpful if you flipped over there. This is one of the most important interchanges that Jesus has with the Pharisees. John 8.33. And it's a confrontation. In John 8.33... Well, let's just start in 31. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, see, he's got a big crowd there, and it's made up of two groups. There's sort of a a smaller group in front, and these are the Jews that have believed in him. Then there's another group of Jews, that's these Pharisees that have been in confrontation with him. So in verse 31, Jesus says to the Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I talked about this on Sunday morning. Uh, This is talking about the truth of God's word, not just in any kind of intellectual truth. And they answered him. Now the they here that comes along in 833, that's not the Jews who believed him. Because it's clear from what they say that these are not believers. Okay? They said to him, this is the Pharisees, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone, so how can you say you will be made free? Well, there's a couple of problems here because, first of all, they have been in bondage. They're under bondage to Rome at this particular time. Uh, they've been in bondage to their to their sin nature, and so they are under uh, you know, they're, they're in bondage. They are not free. Uh, so they missed the point. But that's not what I want to camp out on. They said, we are Abraham's descendants. What, are, what was their thinking? What was the idea in Pharisaical theology? Is that Abraham had so much righteousness that all of the Jews get into heaven riding on, the riding on his righteous coattails. See, the Catholics didn't come up with that idea. That goes back. The, Satan doesn't have to come up with new, new ideas all the time. He just keeps promoting the same thing and just, just camouflages it a little bit. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They're saying, look, Abraham had enough righteousness for all of us. He's our father. So Jesus says, verse 34, 
I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. You've got to be adopted into God's royal family. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you should be free indeed. He goes on to say, I know you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word is no place in you. In other words, you claim to be Abraham's descendants, but if you were really Abraham's descendants, you wouldn't be trying to kill me. You would welcome me, so you really aren't Abraham's descendants. Of course, they don't like that. In verse 39, they say, Abraham is our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham, but now you seek to kill me. A man who's told you the truth, which I heard from God, Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. And then in verse 42, Jesus goes on to say, if God were your father, you would love me. So all of the, the background to this whole interchange where he ends up saying, verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. The whole background for that is this understanding that they got righteousness by virtue of birth. By virtue of being Jewish, they get it from uh, Abraham. Now, we need to go back uh, before to this slide. Romans 4.2. This is where Paul explains. He said, for if Abraham was justified by works, and he's not, okay, that would be a second-class condition. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Now to him who works, see, there's that word again. This is works to get justified. This is phase one. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, Titus 3, 5, Galatians 2, 6, all exclude works of phase 1. Now, to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but debt. See, when you work, you get paid something, you earn something. So they're earning salvation. But to him who does not work, but believes. See, here, belief at phase 1 is contrasted to works at phase 1. But who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. That's just going right back to Genesis 15.6. Okay, now, skip through these two slides. We've already been there. Then you go to Isaiah 53.10. Remember, we started Isaiah 64.6 in the Old Testament, went to Genesis 15.6, and then we went to Romans 4. And now we're going to look at Isaiah 53.10, the passage on the suffering servant, the greatest Old Testament prophecy on the Messiah. We read in, in verse 10, Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him, that is the servant. He's put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper his hand. So the point to make here is it's not Israel. This is what modern Judaism since the since about 1000 uh, with Rashi and David Kimchi and a few others, they, they decided to finally figure out a way to reinterpret the servant as Israel. But this doesn't make sense. When you make his soul, when you make the life of the servant an offering for sin, that could only fit with Jesus. Now, verse 11, he shall see the, he, meaning God the Father, shall see the labor of his soul. Okay? That's the suffering servant. And be satisfied. That's propitiation. By his knowledge, my righteous servant, see, the servant is righteous. But what does Isaiah 64, 6 say? It says that no one 
all our righteousness are his filthy rags. So there's something distinct about this servant. He's got righteousness. My righteous servant who had sadiq shall justify, that's the verb, sadak, shall justify many. Why? Because he will bear their iniquities. See, so how did they get righteousness in the Old Testament? Like Abraham, by faith. And God imputes them to righteousness. What's the ultimate basis for that? It's the servant who bears the iniquities of all of us so that we can be justified by faith in him. That's the background of what Paul is saying, Galatians 2.16. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus, even we have believed in Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So in all these verses, we've excluded works. But then when we get to the end of the book, we get to the end of Revelation. Revelation twenty-two twelve, we read Jesus saying, And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. There's that phrase, according to his work. That was the phrase that was used at the great white throne judgment. They're evaluated according to their work, and it's not enough. So this is talking about something different. This is not talking about phase one, justification, because that's clearly that clearly excludes works. This is Jesus coming. The key word here is reward. A reward is something that is earned. A reward is not a gift. So this is talking about something that is not related to phase one because that's clearly stated to be a, 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 to be a, a gift. It's not earned. It's not on the basis of, of a wage. So something, though, is going on in relation to works. In 2 John 1.8, John said, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. In other words, you may not get a full reward. You may lose your reward. Something may happen. Now, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we have an interesting verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's not the great white throne judgment. And the we there is talking about believers. We're all going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, that is, his works in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is also referred to as the Bema seat. The term Bema just simply refers to a raised platform. We have a Latin word, I think, dais, that refers to the raised platform. If we were in a synagogue, this would be called the Bema. Just merely means a raised platform. It's a place where a judge would sit or evaluation. This is in Corinth, so here we have a picture of the remains of the Bema. Uh, here, this is where the procurator would sit and hear trials. Up here, you have the high place at Corinth, the Acre Corinth. Here's another picture, and there I am with Tommy Ice and Tim LaHaye and Ed Heinsohn, and you can see the Bema sign on the wall behind us. So that gives us some background. We need to develop this a little further. I'll do that Sunday morning and next Thursday night as well. 
that God the Father judges us uh, according to each one's work. That's what takes place at the Bema seat. Second Corinthians um, five ten, whether the work that is done, whether it's good or bad, and those words are significant there, uh, and the Greek words are significant. We'll get into that a little Sunday morning and more next Thursday night. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to be reminded that even though we're saved by grace and our sin is paid for, nevertheless, there will be accountability. There will be an evaluation of our life and how we have served you and how we've walked by the Spirit, and that will be determined at the judgment seat of Christ. And the result of that will impact how we spend eternity, how we serve you, where we serve you, our roles and responsibilities in heaven. And we pray that you would give us the uh, great understanding of this passage and that it would motivate us in our spiritual growth. And, Father, we also continue to pray for George Mueller, pray for his recovery, uh, that this would not be anything with serious consequences and that he will be uh, out of the hospital and restored to regular regular life uh, pretty quickly. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.